0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verses 3, as well as chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." This is God's Word. Please be seated.
1: Well, it's passages like this that uh, make Ecclesiastes a certain type of book, right? It's uh, days like this that are fitting with Ecclesiastes. But it's not all hopeless, and we saw that last week, and we'll see some of it today. But as I was thinking about this morning, uh, I was reminded of a time when years ago uh, I was going to the bank to get money out of my savings account to go purchase a vehicle. And uh, I had been shopping around for a while and I found the perfect one on Craigslist and there was a competition. Uh, What happened was there was another person who also said he wanted to buy the vehicle. It was cash only. But he was coming from an hour farther away than I was. And the guy told me on the phone, whoever gets here first gets the vehicle. Well, I decided to go to the bank and get the cash. And so not really thinking about it, I drive up to the ATM, put my card in and try to get, you know, a few thousand dollars to buy this vehicle. And you can't do that. Uh, I found that out. Not like I often try to get a few thousand dollars out of the ATM, but you can't do that. So the good thing was the bank was open. I go in and the clock is ticking in my mind and the, the teller, this helpful woman, at first she was helpful, she said, um, Here, Here's a sheet. Uh, you, need to, you need to sign this. And I'm thinking, Well, I already put my card in. I already punched in my pen number. Why? My pen, sorry. Uh, that would be too much, pen number, right? Uh, my pen, punch in my pen. And, she, and it goes through. But she says, I need you to sign this piece of paper, so I sign it. And she looks at it, and she looks at her computer screen. So this is my signature. And she says, "Hold on a second. And she goes to get her manager and brings her manager out. And they say to me, uh, "Sir, this signature that you just did doesn't look at all like the signature that you signed when you opened this account, you know, years ago." And I said, "So?" She said, "Well, you can't. I can't give you your money uh, if if the signature isn't the same." And so I, th- I legitimately thought it was a joke. I thought it was a little over the top. Nevertheless, I thought it was a joke. So we go back and forth a few times, and she is really serious that she's not going to give me my money. And at this point, I'm thinking, that dude's going to beat me to this, to this vehicle. So I tell her, I say, hey, listen, I'm so grateful, honestly, that you would protect my money like this. This gives me great uh, trust in this institution. Uh, however, uh, if I don't get my money now, um, I'm going to have to move to a different institution uh, that I can uh, get my money from. I don't remember how it was resolved. I did end up leaving with my money. Okay, now now this is not admittedly any form of injustice. Okay, so I'm not about to try to make that connection. But what it was, was it was the most bizarre experience that I could think of where something that was designed to help me was actually hurting me. Something that was designed to help me was being used against me and I had no power, yet it was my money that I had entrusted to them. And thankfully, uh, I got the money, but I really didn't think I was going to. And today in our passage in Ecclesiastes, the teacher is going to lead us to consider the vanity of injustice. And he's going to point out to us the very places that we expect to see justice, that we expect to experience justice, we'll find oftentimes it's not there. The places that are meant to bring about justice actually can work against it sometimes. And the important thing for us, we experience that our longing for justice is hardwired. Again, even in that moment, I was not experiencing injustice with that manager at the bank. Okay? But there was a sense in which her power over me was being used in such a way that it was working against why she had that power. She had power to protect my money, but she was keeping it from me, misusing it, even if she didn't know it. And as we walk through this part of Ecclesiastes with us, or with him, we'll see that the teacher observes injustice in the most discouraging places and in the most discouraging ways. So there are two points today. The first one, is simply that he makes the observation of current injustice. And he does it in three places. Okay, so the first place that he observes current injustice is in pervasive corruption. So if you look in verse 16, right away when he starts off here, chapter 3, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness... Even there was wickedness. So what he's saying is, in the very places he would expect to see justice, he sees the opposite. So the two particular places here are the courtroom and the church. So in the courtroom, justice isn't found, he says. And in the church, justice and mercy are not found. So what is one to do when these places have been corrupted? I mean, think about what it feels like when you go to the very place you expect to find mercy, The very place you expect to find justice, and it's not there. Think of how hopeless that must be. This is your only chance. This is your only hope to go find justice, and it's not there. Think what that would be like. I mean, really, imagine you you have no other relationships. You have no family members you can go to. Your only hope are these two places of justice, and it's not there. That's the hopelessness, the wickedness he's speaking to, right? I've talked to people who've gone into law, people who are in church ministry, nonprofit work, and they see how the sausage is made, so to speak, right? From the outside, you look and you think these places must be filled with pristine justice. You think of, you know, the symbol of justice, Right, It's the woman with the blindfold and the scales and the sword, right? Why? Because she's supposed to, just, Lady Justice is not supposed to uh, show any preference for anything. So she's blindfolded. And she has the sword to bring about swift and judicious justice. And yet in that place, people who train for law will see, well, it's not always that simple people who go into medicine to, to help people get into the medical world and realize, now that I know medicine, can I still love it? And when people go into the church to escape the world, they find out somehow the world got in here too. And this is the, this is the discouragement that the teacher is drawing our attention to. Then in verses 18 through 21, if you look, he goes on in this sort of confusing back and forth in his mind. He's, he's pontificating out loud. And it can be confusing because you're thinking, well, that, how's that in the Bible? That's not true. Well, what he's doing is he's, he's inviting us to think about what life is like under the sun. He's, he's discouraged because he's thinking, okay, I observe injustice. And as Ben mentioned earlier in the call to worship, I see injustice. And I see justice at the same time. But yet, I see those who live a just life and those who live a wicked life, they both die. So his frustration is if death is just the end, then will there ever be a time for judgment? No one knows. Because as he sees it, he asks the question, who can tell us if there's any justice or judgment after this life? And so if we don't see it now, can we expect to see it ever? And this whole deal about uh, he's testing man so that we see in and that they themselves are but beasts. It sounds like scary language, but, and I guess in a sense it is, but if we just observe with him even what happened in the 20th century, we see that man left to himself, right? A whole century given to progress, a whole century given to science, to uh, certainty, removing God or at least marginalizing Him because we don't need a God anymore. We see actually when left to ourselves, we are beasts. Things like the Holocaust happen in the name of progress. So certainly if we journey with Him in this life under the sun, we'll see pervasive corruption and hopelessness. But He also points out that there's the prospering wicked when we look at under the sun and see injustice. This is in uh, verses chapter 8, if you scan down in your worship folder. Particularly, let's start in verse 14. He says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. In other words, how do you get your mind around that one? What do you do when The wicked prosper and the righteous don't. He's dumbfounded by this upside-down reality. So he tells a short story in verse 10. Look at verse 10, chapter 8. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. It's a story in a verse. And the reason we know this is because the word buried, it's very interesting you would think that I saw the wicked buried, meaning they're dead, that that would be a good thing. But in fact, it's not a good thing. The reason is, is a great paraphrase here by Eugene Peterson. Uh, what, before I get there, we need to know the key word is the word buried, right? Knowing this means the wicked one is dead. But this word buried speaks to not the fact that he is thrown out, he's dead, he's finally gotten rid of, but he's treated like a righteous one. He's given a proper burial when he's lived this wicked life. And uh, here's a great paraphrase of this verse. One time I saw wicked men give a solemn burial in holy ground. When the people returned to the city, they delivered flowery eulogies. And in the very place where wicked acts were done by those very men, more smoke, vanity. Vanity. So he wants to know, how is it that we speak well, even in death of those who have done great wickedness? He can't stand this. He he sees it happen. And then he sees people celebrate life as though it was a life worth celebrating. As though they weren't horrible parents and citizens and neighbors. Right? This happens all the times, all the time at funerals. It's as though we're compelled to talk this way of people, but we all wink at each other after it's done. And he can't stand this. This too is vanity. What are we to do? There's pervasive corruption. Even when we know there's corruption, the wicked prosper in life and in death. This, this flowery talk that we have about them. And the other place that he observes current injustice and invites us to, to observe it is in delayed justice. So look at chapter 8 verses 11. Start with verse 11 here. He says, uh, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You know what this is like. Even if we think about ourselves, you do something that may prick your conscience once, but it was kind of exhilarating, and you didn't get caught, and nothing bad happened. So then you thought the next time, well, it's not so bad. I mean, maybe I could do it again. I won't keep doing it. But then you do keep doing it. And justice seems to be so far off. Consequence seems to be so far away. And all of a sudden, your heart starts to drift toward the very thing that you know is wrong, that you know is wicked. So for you and I, we can, we can say that those wicked people, yeah, right, if, if, uh, if all the wicked people in the world immediately got justice, then it would be a deterrent to all the others. But yet you and I live the reality to where we aren't deterred from our own wickedness and our own sin, right? This is why I pray regularly that my kids will always get caught. And I tell them that I pray this for them. They're confused at this point. But I tell them, right? So my daughters, young daughters, they, uh, they ask me, how, how did you find out? And I said, I know everything. And don't you ever forget that. And I, say, I, and I say, well, I, I don't know everything, but I know more than you think I know. And I pray that you'll always be caught. And then it, it dawned on me how vindictive that sounds when you say that and unmerciful. So then I reflected on it and I thought, you know what? I'm going to start praying that for myself. And I started praying for myself, Lord, let me always get caught. Because he's right. There's a danger in delayed judgment. Now there's a mercy. And that's the that's the purpose of it, right? The scriptures teach us that God, in His unbelievable wisdom, unfathomable mercy, delays justice because it's His kindness that does draw us to repentance. And yet, because I know He's so merciful, I ask, let me always get caught. So the writer looks at these three areas uh, where he observes injustice, the pervasive corruption, the prospering wicked, and the seeming delay of justice. And he is dumbfounded. So uh, what I wanted to to point out, though, before we move on to the second point, is that um, he just observes this injustice. He doesn't seem to be angry. He seems to be confused. But he's not angry. He's not calling anyone to action. And yet we do have to realize that not everyone, not all of us, have the privilege to merely observe injustice. But for some, it marks large parts of their life. Right, most of us are not confronted daily with injustice. I'm not. Ecclesiastes though refuses to let us avoid these questions. People like me, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with me. I'm just speaking a true thing. And that is, I can turn off the news, I can stop reading the news, I can stop watching TV, not have any clue what's going on in the world, and I can just live my life uninterrupted. I don't have to be scared. And because that's true, even about the the sage, the teacher, he, he invites us to ponder, to consider these realities of injustice. Right? Because it's at this point we need to consider deeply why it is that we might not think as much about injustice as we ought. Why it is that we might not be deeply saddened and hurt, and moved by the injustice around us. Commentator Derek Kidner said this, if the writer's gloom strikes us as excessive at this point. So I just pause. Does this seem excessive? I would rather people never be born because this world is so unjust, he says. He says, if, if the writer's gloom strikes us as excessive at this point, we may need to ask ourselves if our more cheerful outlook springs from hope. And not complacency. While Christians see further ahead than the writer allows himself to look, it is no reason to spare ourselves the realities of the present. So, this is what he's saying. He's saying, Are you calm? Am I calm and relaxed and hopeful because the gospel's true? Or am I calm and hopeful and relaxed because this life is comfortable and this life's going pretty well? And because I'm complacent? Am I calm and hopeful because God is sovereign and He reigns, or because I'm complacent? And I would ask you to do and reflect, as I have been this week, on this challenge from Derek Kidner. So, do these words seem over the top to you, and if so, why? And this brings out a strong emerging theme in the writer. To the Ecclesiastes, he's holding up last week, for example, the importance of jo- enjoying life as a gift. We talked about his confession that all good things come from the Lord and we should enjoy them. And yet here he's back to talking about the deep brokenness of the world. And he's juxtaposing these realities. And the reason is, is because they're both true in this life and they both belong together. And so how do we deal with both of these things together when there's this gap? And it, we deal with it in the same way. And that is by faith in a good and sovereign God. In other words, you can't look injustice in the face without going straight to despair and cynicism unless you have faith in a good, sovereign God. And you can't, while this is happening, fully love and enjoy and embrace the good gifts of toil, of, of good work, and of food, and drink, and relationships. The, the only way you can truly enjoy those things when injustice exists is to realize that God is good and sovereign and merciful and He's wise. We don't get it. We don't fully understand it. But we have to accept both in faith, or we lose the proper perspective of both. So surely we are to do more than merely observe injustice. So how do we respond? Right. That would be a question because there are so many things around us. It, but it's not just on the news. It's not just happening. All over the world as it seems to be turning upside down. Not just this country, everywhere. Surely we want to do more than observe injustice. Some traditions uh, will talk about, we're about deeds, not creeds, I've heard it said. And what they mean by that is we're about action, even if it's at the expense of proclamation. And of course, that's not the way we go. It's been called the social gospel in some ways. So the gospel is not the social gospel, but certainly the gospel has social implications. And then on the other side, though, where most churches in our tradition are at least stereotyped to fit, is we're about creeds, not deeds. Right? Sound doctrine, but we minimize tangible action. Now, the question is, you have to ask yourself, where do you lean? Which way do you lean and why? And the biblical stance, yes, of course, is creeds to deeds. This must be a God-centered theology that leads us to passionate mercy and justice and proclamation. Human beings must be displaced from the center in order for us to understand justice and mercy and why it matters. So what can we do to begin to move practically towards this as we observe injustice? So I just have four principles. These are principles... But I'm inviting you to them as we think about how do we, how can we respond to this injustice all around us. The first thing is pray. Right? And, and this seems so churchy. But many of us have the tendency to first react. And a lot of times we just make things worse. And of course, in my generation, the first place to react is where? Online. Lots of Uh, virtue signaling. In other words, hey, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm not going to really do anything. I'm not even going to pray, but I'm going to make sure I tell you how angry I am at this social issue in reality. So then that way I'm good. I'm good. That has a name. Okay. And it's called virtue signaling. But when we're called to pray, we're called to actually pray. We're called to pray because we're praying to the God who actually can bring justice, who actually can bring peace. And as we pray, we need to seek understanding. Okay, there are, there are plenty of ways we can seek understanding, but that includes listening and asking questions, not avoiding things, not jumping to conclusions. We have to realize as we seek understanding that we all have blind spots and we don't have all the answers. For instance, with race issues, we can ask ourselves questions like, what are the dynamic dynamics of a majority and minority culture? What does that even mean? What are the dynamics between the rich and the poor? How does sin affect systems? How do I seek wisdom and not justification for the way I live my life? So after you pray and you begin to seek understanding, we repent. Okay, we repent of apathy and we repent of avoiding injustice. And we repent of our apathy simply because it may be controversial, because it's hard and it's messy, or because maybe it doesn't directly impact you and me. We repent for all of the reasons why we may not talk about it, why we may not engage it, why we may not seek understanding. Ah, well, I don't know. Just never know. You know, I got plenty of other things to do. Whatever the reasons are, me too. Me too. As we're praying and as we're seeking understanding and as we're repenting, knowing that I wouldn't put it past me either, right? That, that is, a, I heard this recently, that's a simple definition or description of humility is just simply to really mean it and say, I wouldn't put that past me either. And then the, the last principle then, as we're praying and seeking understanding and repenting where necessary, we get involved. We ask God, God, how would we respond? So individually, we ask each other, we ask ourselves, how are we going to respond? How is God calling us to respond? And, and as New City, this is where we start too. We go through these same realities. As we pray and we seek understanding and we repent and we get involved, God is calling his people to justice and mercy in our communities, in our places of work, in our industries. Some of you work in industries that need you. They need your prayer and your understanding and your nuance and your faith. And your salt and lightness. You're needed there. I'm needed there. Everywhere you live, learn, work, and play, pray that your eyes would be opened. Seek understanding, repent, and move toward people, even when it's uncomfortable. And I find that when we do this, things get messy. They can get messy. But one of the ways that my life changes as my eyes continue to be open is things aren't as simple as they used to be. And that sometimes can lead me to cynicism, thinking, I just need to throw my hands up. And we can hear that some, maybe, in the writer to the Ecclesiastes. But there's something so striking when we look closer at the passage that we read today. What we see is actually hope. Did you see it? He makes a confession multiple times that even in the midst of this brokenness, that he has hope and faith in a just God. So we see first he makes observations of current injustice, and he did it in those three areas of pervasive corruption, prospering wicked and delayed justice. And then I shared, hey, what are some ways that we practically and generally and specifically can begin not just observing injustice, but moving toward injustice? And the reason we can do that, is because of the second point that he makes. And that is the confession of future justice. Look with me here at verse 17, chapter 3. We skipped it. Or I skipped it. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. He sort of slips it in there. He sort of keeps himself sane there. He puts a ballast down. As he's about... To reflect on all the injustice before he does that in verses 18 through 22 in chapter 3, he puts this ballast down in verse 17. And he says, I'm gonna need this, or I'm gonna get tossed out into the open sea as I think about the pain and reality of this. He says in his heart that there is a time that God will judge in the things, all things and people. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. He slips in another confession of this future certainty. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Do you see the change in the verb there? All throughout the passage we read he's, "I saw, I saw, I saw. He's making observations about the world around him under the sun. But then here in verse 12 in chapter eight, He says, I know. What is that? How does he know? Everything he sees is the opposite of what he just said. How does he know? He knows because this is a confession of faith. He knows because he's letting the sun break through from beyond the sun to time and space. He's making a confession. And the force of this confession is one that can look at a person, get by with the sin of injustice a hundred times and live a long life. And, And it's the type of confession that can look at a system that is broken and watch wickedness continue for generations and still say with the confidence of faith, God will make this right. Again, Eugene Peterson paraphrases the spirit, the heart behind this verse so well when he paraphrases verse 12 and 13 this way. I'm still convinced that the good life is reserved for the person who fears God, who lives reverently in his presence, and that the evil person will not experience a good life. No matter how many days he lives, they'll all be as flat and colorless as a shadow because he doesn't fear God. So, when we're experiencing injustice, when we're observing injustice all around us, how do we bear it? How did he bear it? How do we simply not turn to cynicism like, the, like the, it almost drips from these verses so many places, except for the verses of confession, despair is just rolling off the pages. So how do you and I not give in to Despair. Well, we look to Jesus, but we look to him in a very specific way. Not in a general way, but a very specific way. Because in Jesus, we have a God who suffers. We have a God who came to address evil and injustice. And in Jesus, he was treated with evil and injustice. God, in Jesus, became a victim of injustice and oppression. He was in a court, and he was innocent but he was tried as guilty. Jesus was treated like an animal, and as he died, there was no one to comfort him. There was no one to respond to his tears. He experienced the wrath and judgment of God in the place of the guilty. And this was not for camaraderie in an evil and unjust world with us. It was to deal with evil and injustice once and for all. And in light of what happened One day Jesus will come and he'll make all things right and all will be held responsible for their evil and injustice. All, every small evil, every small injustice, all things will be made right. And when Jesus returns, all evil, all injustice, all oppression will be dealt with once and for all. And in knowing this, we will still struggle. So we can know this and still struggle. And we can cry out with people in Scripture throughout all of time with the phrase, How long, O Lord? How long must we wait? All over the place we see this happening. And we may struggle with the delay, but as it's been said, justice delayed is not justice denied. Criticizing God for not dealing with it right now is like reading half of a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot right then and there. This wisdom and this power and this goodness of God in his plan as life over the sun informs life under the sun is something beyond our observation, but it's not beyond our confession of faith. And so I want to end with this quote because many of you have heard, and if not, you have heard something like this. Christians are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. False. The problem is, as C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Here's another quote to end. Only those who fill their hearts and minds with heaven can want or even recognize its earthly counterpart. Only they can seek after it in a way that indulges neither utopian dreams nor despotic solutions. To be a real earthly good requires a certain fearlessness, a freedom from the fear of death, from the loss of property or status or title or comfort, from the threats of tyrants, the power of armies, the day of trouble. People fixated on earth generally do not have this deep taproot of courage and conviction. Seldom do they stand down pharaohs, Caesars, Stalins, with nothing but a stick in their hand, Or a cross on their back. Nor do they generally look after widows and orphans in distress. Or care for the dying or feed the hungry. This is left for the heavenly minded to do. For the Stephens. Who serving meals to the widows and confronting the powers of the age. Were all of a piece, And who at the very edge of his brutal execution looked up to the heaven. And saw the glory of God. Like the tug and heft of a huge unseen planet hovering near, the hope of heaven is meant to exert a gravitational pull that gives our lives stability, substance, and weight. Ironically, it alone has the power to give us, in a sustained way, the moral and spiritual ballast needed to keep our feet on the earth to make us of much earthly good. It is a rumor of home and a place of exile, inspiring us to keep up the good work. It is unseen things that render the things we do see, both the beauty and the ugliness, the grandeur and the barrenness, never enough, and yet never too much to give up. You see, the grace of God fuels a passion for justice and freedom and freedom from oppression. So let us be a people here in our lives as we're sent and let us be a people here at New City gathered increasingly who pray and seek understanding and repent and act on behalf of those in need of justice and mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now, of course, confessing our lack